Good morning, everybody. Happy April the 7th to you. It's hard to believe we're making our way toward the end of another school year, toward the end of another amen as well. And we are making it through Romans in one year. That's lightning speed. Turn to Romans 14, and we're going to examine the first 12 verses of that chapter this morning. And we enter a very interesting and important area of study that has to do with relationships in the church. Because you'll remember the context of Romans 14. Paul, in the first 11 chapters, laid out a redemptive theology. Not just theology in the abstract, but what God did to rescue sinners like you and me from our desperate plight. And he took nine chapters to do that and chapters 10, uh, I'm sorry, eight chapters and then chapters 9, 10, 11 to show how the Jews and Gentiles relate to one another and what their theological history is and their theological justification for their inclusion in the church. So the first 11 chapters are probably the Bible's greatest treatise on redemption. And then when you get to chapter 12, he, he's saying in effect, there are some massive consequences in our lives as a result of being saved by the mercy and grace of God. He says that we are therefore, because of what God has done for us, his mercy toward us, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds and to give ourselves over completely to him. And doesn't that just make sense? If someone rescues you from a sure death, I mean, after all, you just owe him your life. And God, especially, he made us and then he redeemed us and he's going to give us an eternity of joy with him. So we owe him everything. It's the only reasonable, Paul says, the only reasonable or the only spiritual response a person can make if he's in his right mind. From there, he goes to show us the first big commandment, which summarizes everything basically he wants to say about our obligation. And that is the big commandment is to love one another, uh, to love our neighbors ourselves. And of course, Jesus says in John chapter 13 to love one another as he has loved us. But in this case, he's not only talking about love among the brothers, he's also talking about our love even for our enemies. So we love our neighbors ourselves. And Paul is continuing that discussion here in chapter 14. Now in chapter 12, you remember he started off by showing how we love one another by serving each other with our spiritual gifts. Whatever you've received, it is for the purpose of being given away. And so when you come to church for the first time, you're joining the church, you're looking around saying, how can I, how can I help here? What can I offer to move this group of people forward in their lives? How can I serve them? That's what Paul is saying in the first part of Romans 12. And then latter part of Romans 12, you know, he says that we're to love each other fervently. And then he says we're to even to bless our enemies and, and not persecute those who persecute us, not to return evil for evil, but to leave the day of judgment with God. And meanwhile, we just simply serve and love even those who would despise us. He gets to chapter 13 and he shows us how this works out even in civil affairs. And it's especially important for us in a political year. There's one thing to have a political opinion or an opinion about public policy. It's another thing to despise people or to run them down or to wish them ill. And Paul shows how we love even those who persecute us 
from the civil realm. Nero was persecuting the Christians in Rome and he told them that they're to submit to every governing authority ordained by God. So Christians, once again, display neighbor love by submitting to every God-ordained authority in our lives, including our bosses at work. Now, fortunately, in our economy, you have the freedom to leave that job and go get another one if you want to. But as long as you're in that job, you seek to promote the interests of your boss and of the company for whom you work, the stockholders. Why? Because you love your neighbors yourself. And then in the conclusion of 13, we saw last week, he shows how for those of you who have a Jewish background, for those of you who really love the Old Testament, for those of you who want to be sure you're law-abiding, righteous followers, hey, let me tell you what the summary of the law is. Love your neighbors yourself. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, he's saying, your relationship to the law demands love. So if you really want to be a law-abiding person, if you're really meticulous about your behavior with respect to the law, then you should love one another. And then lastly, in 13, he shows how not just our relationship to the law, but our relationship to the last time, the, the, the last days, which we're in now. Our relationship to time suggests that we must love our neighbor as ourselves because the time is short. Uh, it's amen time. It's the sun. You can see that it is coming up. It's not quite up yet, but you can see the first evidences of it. And that's the age in which we're living. Therefore, love one another. Love your neighbors yourself. Now, Paul in chapter 14 is continuing the argument. And here he's especially going back to the issue of Jew and Gentile, which for us is very instructive because with Jew and Gentile, you have obviously two very different cultures coming together in the church. You have two religious backgrounds. Generally, you have two races, at least two races, and probably more than two races. You have two very different views of culture and how to relate to culture. Very different people who are trying to live like family within the church. And Paul is going to address some of the things that come up when you put two cultures together, when you try to live, say, in Memphis as black and white or as undocumented Hispanic and wealthy professional Caucasian or African-American, how do you put these people together in one body? Well, what you're going to realize, lots of stuff is going to come up. We're going to disagree about things in the church. We're going to have different instincts about how things ought to get done. Paul in chapters 14 and the first part of 15, the first four verses especially, shows us that we've got to be able to make a difference between those things that are clearly true to which we're obligated and then those things that he calls matters of indifference or doubtful matters or things that can be disputed, disputable matters. Uh, in seminary, we call them adiaphora, which is, uh, 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 means matters of indifference. It's a Greek word, adiaphora. I don't think it's in the Bible, but it's, it's a word that's commonly used in theology. Oh, that's adiaphora. That is, it, it's a matter of indifference or a matter of dispute. And so often, you know in your marriages, if you go back this past year and tabulate all the arguments you had, now there'll be a few of you who will say, oh, we never had one. Yeah, you lie about a lot of other stuff too. But... If you go back and tabulate all your arguments, I can guarantee you they're almost all on matters of indifference. 
I mean, very rarely do you have a massive argument on whether you should tithe or not tithe. Whether you should be regular in church or not be regular in church. Sometimes you do, but rarely do you have arguments on principle. Your arguments are on matters of preference or what the Bible would call matters of indifference. There may be some moral implications one way or another, but they're kind of remote. They're at least secondary, often tertiary or more remote. It's usually matters of indifference about what you argue in your marriages. Well, let me tell you something. Your marriage is a picture of people trying to get along in the church, in family. We're trying to be family. And the closer we get to each other, the freer we feel to argue about matters of the color of the carpet and whether we have drapes in the windows and all kinds of things that we can argue about. So in family life and church life, it's very important to be able to make a distinction between what is revealed truth and what is simply your preference. Then within revealed truth, it's very important to distinguish between matters that are essential to salvation and matters that are secondary. And the level of the arguments and the level of your passion should be related to the proportional weight of the biblical doctrine. This takes sometimes years to develop, but Paul is calling upon these Roman Christians to develop these sens sensibilities so that they know how to disagree with each other and how to resolve and how to just let some stuff go and how not to worry about everything that comes up in the church. Focus on the things that matter, not just the things of indifference. Now, it's not to say in these secondary matters that they don't matter at all. They do matter. For example, we have issues, differences of, of baptism, church government, other things, predestination or non-predestination. And, and we would say, if you're a predestinarian especially, you would say, this is an important matter. I'm going to teach on this. And we've taught on it because Paul taught on it. It's a matter of biblical truth. But then it's another question to ask yourself. Should we remove people from the communion table because they don't believe in predestination? Or some of you have to ask the question, should we remove people from the communion table because they haven't been immersed as an adult? Now, that's a very important question. And I have an answer for it, but I, I think I'll wait. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Christian wisdom leads to peace. In fact, the wisdom that, uh, that is from above is peaceable. We've got to learn how to apply Christian wisdom in ways that does not, do not necessarily divide the body. Uh, so that's what Paul's interested in. It's real, practical church life. And if you really are trying to live like a family, and if you've had any experience in this, you know what he's talking about. Now what we see in chapters 14 and 15, he lays down some really important principles for how to do this. And it should help us in married life, it should help us in rearing children, and it should certainly help us in in church life. It actually can help us in civic life as well to learn the difference between weighty matters and lighter matters, to learn the difference between things you can be sure of and things you ought, you ought not to be so sure of that. It's not revealed in the scriptures. Well, let's take a look at it. We're going to begin just with the first 12 verses. We'll try to finish it out next week, this, this portion of, of his argument. But look at verse one with me. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observe it, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess, shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, look at this first verse and notice that we must welcome each other fully. Welcome each other fully. When you've got a matter that you think is truth or falsehood or, or wise or unwise, you've got an opinion about something that shouldn't divide Christians, but where we legitimately disagree and we have some arguments over it, what should you do? Should you say something to him or not say something to him? Should you just keep your peace and keep your own thoughts to yourself? Or should you benefit him with the beauty of your wisdom on this matter? What should you do? Well, here's what the Paul, Apostle Paul says you should do. You should welcome him. You should receive him. And here was the problem in the Roman church. They had a tendency to want to exclude each other on matters that were not essential to the gospel. And Paul says, y'all stop doing that. Now, some of you come from backgrounds where you do necessarily exclude people. Uh, if they haven't been baptized in your church, you exclude them from the communion table. Uh, there are some European Protestants. If you haven't been confirmed by one of their bishops, then you're not welcomed at their communion table. In other words, you have to be in their national evangelical church or their national Protestant church. There are all kinds of reasons why we exclude one another. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, on matters of indifference, rule number one, welcome one another. Receive each other fully. So you can have all kinds of standards. We do here about what a, a man ought to be if he's to be an elder or a deacon in the church. We have standards for leadership. We apply those standards to the best of our ability. But we welcome everybody who shows evidence of being a genuine believer. And they don't have to agree with us on predestination or on baptism or on church government. They just have to submit to the government that we have. And they can continue to hold their views in these other areas that are not essential to their salvation. Now it takes wisdom to discern what are these essential matters. But the Apostle Paul is simply saying, look, there, there are people who have what he calls uh, weak faith. And that is that their consciences have not developed to the point that they're free from some of the moralisms and legalisms of the past. 
For example, some people might still have a rabbit's foot on their rearview mirror. They just, their mama told them they'd bring good luck. They just can't get that out of their heads. They got a rabbit. Are you going to excommunicate them because they have a rabbit's foot? I don't think so. On the other hand, Paul's going to show us that people with a Jewish background have a number of things that they were taught that were essential to their being Jewish, essential to their belonging to God. They have a very hard time disabusing themselves of those ideas. And the first one he mentions is their, their diet. Now, think about, think about the book of Daniel. You remember Daniel, who as a teenager was brought into the royal court with three of his friends. And they were going to beef them up so they looked better than everybody else. And they brought all this Gentile food. And Daniel, remember, said, no, we'll just, we're, gonna, we're not going to eat uh, this, this Gentile food. We're going to stick to our dietary program." And basically ate vegetables. Well, now, if Daniel, you're taught all your life that Daniel is one of your heroes. And Daniel stood up to the pagans in Babylon by not eating their food and sticking strictly to the Old Testament dietary rules. And your mama told you that's the way we Jewish people, that's the way we do it. You become a Christian. And you look at that meat that still has the blood in it, that's non-kosher. You just can't bring yourself to eat it. You've just been taught too long that that was against God's plan. And it seems as though you're denying, denying even the legacy of Daniel, that maybe Daniel was willing to die for something stupid because you're, you're now eating this meat freely. And Paul's addressing that. He's got people in, in his church in Rome who, who believe that, who are, who are thinking that very way. And he says, okay, look, I grant, and I'm a Jew, I was brought up with those same ideas, but I'm free to eat meat. Meat that uh, hasn't been prepared in a kosher way, okay? I'm free to do that. Why? Well, I've had about a decade to study the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ, to work it all out theologically, and to realize ethically I'm free. I have a strong faith. I've redeveloped my conscience. These are new Christians. They're just coming out of their Jewish background. And he says, look, welcome those with weak faith. Just because they go to fellowship dinner and they won't eat the meat, they don't have to sit at a separate table and you think they're, they're weird and you socially excommunicate them. You don't ecclesiastically excommunicate them. You just socially excommunicate them. You sit over here at this other table. And you know, Peter did that. And Paul saw him do it. This is in Galatians. And Paul even called out an apostle because an apostle, a Jewish apostle, wouldn't sit at table at a church meal to eat with the Gentiles because Jews just didn't do that. And Paul called him out because he was dividing on an indifferent matter, on dietary laws. But here he's saying to the strong, you fully welcome people with their weird traditional ideas. And he says in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't welcome him so that you can quarrel over the dietary laws. Hey, come sit over at our table. Hey, tell me, why are you keeping those stupid rules? You know, he says, you don't welcome them in and enjoy diversity just so you can argue about diversity. And today, the same would be true. We're family. And of course, we'll discuss everything in our family, but we don't invite people in with a different background just so that we can argue with them about 
whatever issues we disagree on. Paul is saying, welcome them. Now, in this whole presentation, we have two categories here, and I've listed these for you. It's strong conscience versus weak conscience. The strong conscience is bound only by the revealed Word of God and is not bound by extra-biblical tradition. You with me? That's the strong conscience. It's a narrow conscience. So, for example, some of us prefer not to drink alcohol. Some of you may not be drinking because of an issue of conscience. Because you think it's wrong in principle to drink a glass of wine or to have a beer. Now, if you're a, an alcoholic, we'd appreciate it if you wouldn't drink the wine or drink the beer. We know where that heads. So we thank you for being a teetotaler. But I'm not talking about the alcoholics. I'm talking about the religious teetotalers. There may be a few in here who don't drink because of a matter of conscience. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Paul would call that weak faith. And not that your faith in Jesus is weak, but that your conscience is weak and that you've included in your issues of conscience a matter that is not dictated strictly by the Bible. Well, you say, well, yeah, but Jesus, Jesus uh, only drank grape juice. Really? <laughs> when Jesus and the apostles told them to overdrink, I don't think he was telling them not to drink too much grape juice. <laughs> I think he was drinking wine. So uh, the Bible does not forbid us from having a glass of wine. It forbids us from being drunk. Now you can have an issue of conscience there, but if your issue of conscience is prior to that, then that would be, you'd be called weak faith. And Paul is saying to those with strong faith, those of you who feel perfectly free in your conscience to have a glass of wine, to have a beer, to, to in, enjoy the good things of earth as long as you don't get intoxicated. Those of you who are free, sometimes, sometimes, and I've seen this happen in this church, sometimes want to associate only with those who have the same freedom of conscience that you do. And the reason is that when you visit in each other's homes, you want to be able to have a glass of wine without someone looking down on you. I've seen that happen. You watch yourself. You are now not welcoming the one with weak, uh, who is weak, has a weak conscience. So Paul is talking to those, he's, he's challenging those who claim to have a strong conscience, who claim to be free, who claim not to have any, anything binding them except the revealed law of God. He's saying, now you guys, you're the ones. You have to be sure you include. Now he, he'll talk to the ones who have a broader conscience too. Uh, there are things that, that we need to hear on that as well. But here you have the difference then between a strong conscience and a weak conscience. Now notice the tendencies of these two groups. Those arrows that I've drawn will show these tendencies. If you have a weak conscience, that is if you include other matters as a matter of conscience, you know, your tendency is to be moralistic, even legalistic, if you're not really careful. And that is that you're going to be judging other people on the basis of things that are not even in the Bible. As uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it in his volume of sermons, he calls this morbid scrupulosity. You're just scrupulous about everything. It's, it's almost a form of neurosis. 
and you judge other people on the basis of those standards. So you have a very sensitive conscience and you're judging everybody, maybe not verbally, but at least in your mind, you're also judging other people who don't do the very same thing that you do. That's the danger of the weak conscience. Now, what's the danger of the strong conscience? The danger of the strong conscience is, you know, Alfred E. Newman. What, me worry? You know, I'm not, I drink, and I don't have to do this. And I, I'm, you know, there's nothing in the Bible against gambling. Oh, I'm so sure there are some verses you can put together about not gambling, but hey, and the, and the danger is toward antinomianism. That is against the law, not to include the law of God. You say you have a strong conscience because you're not including anything but the law of God, but your danger sometimes is to forget the law of God. You become cavalier about the law of God. And so the strong conscience has to be very careful that you are profoundly principled when things touch upon the revealed word of God. You're free in every other area, but you're profoundly conscientious about the law of God. That's what the strong conscience has to guard. Now, the strong conscience usually has a deep appreciation for the grace of God. And those who teach grace, 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 I've sometimes seen them go over into antinomianism. It's true in reform circles. There are debates these days, especially with the, the younger group about the place of the law in the Christian salvation. And those who really appreciate the freedom from condemnation will sometimes slip over in antinomianism and show attitudes of indifference or cynicism or being cavalier about the true law of God. On the other hand, those with a weak conscience have a deep appreciation for law. They have an appreciation for God's precepts and of Christian ethics. And we should respect them for that. They are very helpful. And I would say most of the people who have taught me about ethics, honestly, have tended to be more on the weak conscience side because they have a very sensitive conscience. And of course, you can see how this breaks out socially. The Gentile background would normally lead to the strong conscience, as Paul calls it, and the Jewish background to the weak conscience. Now, notice how Paul does this. He's a Jew. So if he's going to use the words weak and strong, he ascribes the word strong to the Gentile. And it's a way, you know, just look how gracious he is. You know, in argumentation, we should just learn this in, in just diplomacy, in dealing with conflict. Paul ascribes the better word to the group that he doesn't belong to, the strong word. Because you would expect that if you're strong on the law, that you would be the one with a strong conscience. <laughs> and Paul just flips it and gives the word strong over here to say, here's a person who strongly understands his freedom from condemnation, who strongly understands the place of God's grace. Here's a person who's strong on ethics and strong on the law, but this person's strong on grace. And so he shows us that distinction. Now, we want to receive people in both directions. And we'll get to it in just a moment about how the weak is to receive the strong and to do so by non-sensorious relationships with him. Now, secondly, look at verse two, and we see that behind this is the issue that we legitimately differ on disputable or what you might call doubtful matters. And here Paul gives us an example. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person 
eats only vegetables. Now, you vegetarians would be interested to know that you're the weak person. <laughs> now, I, I have a niece who's a, who's a full vegetarian, a vegan. And I remember asking her one time, uh, and she's, she's not a believer. And I remember asking her, so tell me, what, what are the reasons for your vegetarianism? And she gave me the whole list. And I thought, oh, that's pretty impressive. You know, I, I, can, I can see that. Paul's not talking about the modern day vegan. He's talking about the Jewish believer who insisted on meeting meat that was not strangled and didn't have the blood in it. And you know, in the first general assembly, Acts 15, uh, the apostles decided as a matter of compromise that they'd send out a decree. You know, you don't have to be circumcised. That's great uh, to be in the church. But you must abstain from sexual immorality and from meat uh, offered to idols and meat strangled. That is, you must eat kosher meat. I look back on that and say, you know, that was an interesting compromise because since then we haven't obeyed those latter two uh, edicts out of, the, out of the General Assembly. The General Assembly had moral law in it and then it had a compromise. Let's, this is how the church can get along is that we don't offend our Jewish brethren by eating non-kosher meat. But here Paul is arguing, this is a little later than the Council of Jerusalem. This is another decade later. And he's saying, brothers, look, uh, let's welcome the one who eats only vegetables. He is the person with a weak faith. So Paul is saying, don't let that weird you out because somebody has a, a principle that they're living by that you're not living by. Now, notice that we must make a distinction here, and I've drawn these out for you, the non-essentials that we call adiaphora, non-essentials versus biblical truth. Now, for those of you who are, who are um, familiar with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church that our church is a member of, we have a motto that says, um, somebody help me out, um, in, in uh, liberty and non-essentials, unity and essentials, liberty and non-essentials, and love in all things, or something like that. Well, what our denomination often confuses is what non-essentials are. If you go back to the uh, 16th century, when this slogan was first used in Germany, the definition of non-essentials were things that were not addressed by the Bible. And today, evangelicals like to talk about non-essentials as though they're throwaways. They're just areas where we disagree. Uh, for example, baptism would be a non-essential in a lot of people's minds in terms of your salvation. But the Bible has something to say about it. And I don't think in the 16th century they would have called that a non-essential. So strictly historically speaking, non-essentials are things that are not ordered by the Bible. In other words, the Bible doesn't address them. And that would be whether you should have a glass of wine. The fact of the matter is the Bible seems to address this perfectly okay to have a glass of wine. Or whether you should have bishops or not. It's, it, you know, whether you should have a collective bishop like Presbyterians do or a single bishop like Episcopalians and Methodists do, well, you can debate over those matters. But non-essential means not revealed in the Scriptures. That's the historic use of the word non-essentials versus biblical truth. And you and I must be able to make those distinctions. But notice this second distinction we must make, and that is secondary biblical doctrines versus 
cardinal or primary biblical doctrines. Now, some call these secondary biblical doctrines non-essentials. And in our denomination, we call them non-essentials. I think that's very confusing because they are addressed by the Bible. For example, predestination. You'd say, well, it's non-essential to your salvation as to whether you believe in predestination. True. But it would not be true to say it's non-essential in the sense that the Bible doesn't address it. The Bible does. And if you study the Bible carefully, I think, as we did back in Romans 8 and Romans 9, you'd see that your conscience ought to be bound by predestination. But we're not going to divide over it. Why? It's not a cardinal doctrine. In other words, it's not essential for your, sal- for your justification. Now, you could argue, you Presbyterians, well, yeah, but it's essential for your sanctification. Uh, but not for your justification. So we welcome brothers who disagree with us on secondary revealed doctrines in the Bible. So we, first of all, Paul's here talking uh, primarily about non-essentials, the indifferent matters. But I think using the same logic, we want to be sure that we also make distinctions between these secondary biblical doctrines. Now let's talk about how this applies a little bit. Let's just stop for a moment. Certainly circumcision would be a non-essential in Paul's mind. He taught that. The Jews, many of them felt that was of the very essence of being a follower of God, that you, you're marked out. That's, that's what makes a Christian man a Christian man. He's circumcised. You're different from all those around you. The, the pagans didn't circumcise. The Jews did. And so many Jews felt that that was essential. And Paul says it is not essential. It's, it's not included at all, even as a matter of sanctification. So it's truly a non-essential. The Jews also felt that their dietary laws were essential to them. Paul says it's not. The Jews also felt that their keeping of special days was essential to them. And I think Paul's going to show us in this text and some other texts where that is not essential. And I say that as a Presbyterian who subscribes with exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But Paul here uh, is very clear about what is true moral law that we must abide by and what are our religious traditions and what are our religious disciplines. Let me give you an example. You remember that when Paul recruited Timothy, Timothy uh, had one parent who is Jewish and one parent who is Gentile. And Timothy had never been circumcised. Now, I've just told you, Paul made it really clear, circumcision is not an essential for anything. It just, it's a total indifferent matter. But you know what he did to Timothy? And this is a grown man. This hurt. He had Timothy circumcised. Ha-ha! I know some of us here who'd think twice about being a Christian if Paul had said that to us. Why did he do that? It's a matter of indifference. Doesn't matter at all. Except in missiology. So if you're going to be a missionary and you're going to go first to synagogues, you better be circumcised. You're going to have no hearing whatsoever. Those synagogues are wrong in that they're requiring their preachers to be circumcised. They're wrong about that. But you're not going to even get in the front door. And you're going to create a controversy that can be avoided. So Paul convinces Timothy 
to go through a very painful surgical procedure so that he can preach to the Jews. You see how Paul is still a matter of love. Even with the matter of indifference, Paul would have Timothy go through a major painful experience in order for the mission to be advanced. And our missionaries do the same thing. I hope you do the same thing. That if you go into an environment where you know that these folks have weak conscience and you want to talk to them about the gospel, why would you go in and flaunt your freedom in front of them? And you know you're disqualifying yourself in their minds to be a preacher. I mean, one reason when I came to the South, I'd been in New England. That's where I became a Christian was in New England. And I come back to my home Southland to be, I mean, I'm not a Baptist pastor, but I'm a Presbyterian pastor in evangelical Presbyterian churches. And, you know, back 30 years ago, there were still a number of people who had weak conscience on the issue of alcohol. Now, why am I going to fight that battle for my freedom? Why do, why, do, why do I want to be able to take a glass of wine, which I'm perfectly free to do? But then with 15% of my congregation, they would hold me in, in suspicion. Why is, why is the glass of wine worth that? Not to me. So Paul had Timothy circumcised. Now, in Galatians 2, he makes it very clear to the circumcision party in Galatians, you are not going to circumcise Titus. Why the change? Why did he have, Timothy's going, hey, thanks a lot, boss. <laughs> hey, I want to be like him. <laughs> Why would he not circumcise Timothy, uh, Titus? Was it because Titus was a little squeamish? No, Paul was, because Paul was squeamish. Because in Galatia, the circumcision party was seeking to impose circumcision on everybody else. And Paul had to make a point. And so here, if you're going to divide the church over circumcision, you better believe I'm going to be right there in the middle of that division preaching my heart out. And I'm going to set an example of Christian liberty. So, for example, if I were in a southern church and there was a group that wanted to impose on the entire church that we not drink, I'm going, I'm going to drink wine in public because I won't have anything to do with that. It's contrary to the gospel to impose that on somebody. It's not contrary to the gospel that you have a personal discipline not to drink. Paul proved that with Timothy. It's not contrary to the gospel to be circumcised. It's contrary to the gospel to impose an indifferent matter on everybody else. So you can see how Paul deals with this. He's very gracious when it has to do with his own personal disciplines or the personal disciplines of his closest associate. But when it has to do with imposing those indifferent matters on everybody else so that those who disagree are not welcomed, Paul would lay his life down. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. You see the sensitivity. You see how he dissects things very carefully, ethically. That's what the Christian man has to do. That's the reason we spend years and years studying the Bible, so that we can carefully dissect every situation in which we're called upon to exercise an ethical position. And this comes up every week of my life. Men are dealing with ethical issues and they're having to dissect things. And how do I take this stand or not take that stand? For example, the woman in Kentucky who had an issue of conscience that she wouldn't sign a marriage document for a gay couple and she took a stand on conscience. 
Now, I want to suggest to you, you may disagree with me, but I want to suggest she had a weak conscience. And I understand it. And, and I can sympathize with it. I certainly appreciate her moral sensitivity to the fact that uh, we shouldn't be married in same-sex unions. And we shouldn't have same-sex unions or same-sex sex. I agree with her completely. It's immoral to do that. But where her conscience was weak was she was unable to, di to differentiate between that moral ethical standing and the church, of course, would impose that on everybody in the church on the one hand. And on the other hand, being in the civic society, the state, and simply signing a document that says these people are legitimately married by the state. I'm not saying personally I think they should be. I'm not personally sanctioning their marriage. I'm just an agent of the state who signs off that they were legally married. And they are. But her conscience went beyond a strict biblical interpretation in my mind. And, and bless her heart. I mean, once you have an issue of conscience, you have to obey your conscience. So where she deserves credit out the wazoo is that once you have an issue of conscience, you have to stand up to it. You cannot violate your own conscience. But the problem is you've got people with weak consciences who include more in their moral obligation than the Bible strictly requires. So what we want to do in the church is, first of all, welcome folks like that. Encourage them. At the same time, we want to teach ourselves and our children how to have a strong conscience. As the generations go on, let's be completely committed to the moral ideas that are in the Bible, and let's not call something an issue of conscience that shouldn't be an issue of conscience. Now, I can say to that gay couple, if I'm the agent and I'm signing their document, so I could say, well, you all are now legally married. And then they say, what do you think about that? Well, of course, I'm going to take my opportunity and say, well, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the word, we're taught that God made us a certain way, male and female, to be complementarily put together in a union, just like the Trinity is different and the same, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one and yet they're different and they're in complementary union. So human marriage is to picture that and marriage is for the glory of God. So we just simply want to do it his way. That's what I think. That's the reason I'd be opposed to gay marriage. That's different from not signing the document that says that they're legally married according to the state. You see the difference? So it seems to me that in the church, we want to continually teach on what your conscience should be bound to. Whatever it's bound to, you have to stand to it. For example, you know Luther in, in the 16th century. He's at the Diet of Worms. He's being challenged by the entire church and his representatives who ask him to recant everything that he's written about the gospel and justification by faith alone. And Luther says, you know, I'm, I'm, my conscience is bound to what the scriptures write, uh, say and inferences from the scriptures. My conscience is bound. I can do no other. God help me. Here I stand. So Luther was simply saying, I'm sorry, but I have an issue of conscience. Now in his case, I believe his conscience was truly bound to the biblical truth there. But once your conscience is bound, you can do no other. God help me. Here I stand. So 
you, you see the difference that we must make in these matters. Now, this applies all across the board to several things that we're doing. For example, uh, smoking. Some of you smoke. I want to ask for a show of hands. By the way, I'm serving on a jury this week. And, I, you know, I'd forgotten the judge can ask you just about anything he wants to. <laughs> and, and you're under oath. You've got to answer. You know, are you uh, living alone? Oh, you're not. Is that your boyfriend you're living with or your girlfriend? Mm-hmm. So I found out all kinds of people I'm serving a jury with, living with your you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. Uh, are you, do you drink? You know, and I said, well, Your Honor, I'm, I'm a virtual teetotaler. What's that? Well, every once in a while I have a glass of wine. Oh, okay. You know, so they're stripping you down. You know, pretty soon there comes a point where you think, I might violate this, you know, this oath I just took. <laughs> he keeps asking me these personal questions, you know. So uh, you got to be honest. But some of us smoke. Well, does the Bible say anything about it? Well, you know, the temple is, uh, you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and so on, the things your mama taught you. But <clears throat> you wouldn't want to say that we don't take smokers in our church, <laughs> would you? <laughs> or we only take smokers. I remember when I was a kid, everybody before the church, I mean, the church had nobody in it during the prelude. They were all out front smoking, you know, <laughs> before they come into church. I mean, really, all the men are out there smoking. Just, you know, they put it down yeah, and they go to church, you know, and hope, to get, hope you get there by the time the first hymn takes off. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing for you not to smoke. Let me say, I don't smoke and I don't think, and I hope you don't smoke, although I know some of you do, but it's just not good for you, doggone it. And it's fine for me to say that. But if I say you can't be an elder if you smoke, hmm, okay, well, where's that coming from? You're taking a personal discipline and applying it to everybody. Or, you know, some of you may have some weird rules like I do. Like I don't ever travel in a car with a woman, just one woman by myself. And the women on our staff know that. So if we're going somewhere, okay, let's get another car because, you know, senior minister and his, well, I just like that rule a lot. And I don't have lunch or dinner with another woman who's not a member of my family. I just, I think I made one exception in 22 years. Uh, Linda Gibbs, uh, who was uh, head of Hutchinson School, we ate in a very public place uh, one time. I think that's the only time I've done that. So I make exceptions, but generally I have these disciplines. Now, there's one thing for me to have a discipline. You can imagine all the good reasons why I would do that. Uh, but for me to say, I think it's immoral for you all to ride in a car by yourself with another woman. Now, that's, that's a weak conscience uh, that's trying to dominate the church. Or it's one thing for me to say, our family is not going to play uh, organized sports on Sundays, which we haven't uh, since we've been Christian family. And I think that's a great rule. And I've been challenged on it by basketball coaches and others, you know, my kids' coaches. But we just don't. And it's worked wonderfully for us. But for me to say, I don't think any of you all should have your kids play organized sports? Well, really, uh, that's imposing a weak conscience on others. It's one thing for me to say, uh, I think wealthy people like us, compared to the world, ought to give more than the tithe. Tithe is for beginners, for heaven's sakes. It's for kindergartners. Now, come on. Y'all making over $100,000, you'd still just give 10%. Some of you making a half a million dollars, you're giving 10% and complaining about that. Are you kidding me? Now, it's one thing for me to say that and joke around about it. For, but for me to say, it's the Lord's will that everybody here must do this, that, and the other beyond the tithe. That's imposing a discipline that I believe in for myself upon the whole church. Paul, Paul is making these distinctions. It's not so bad to have your own style and your own ways of doing things. But 
to make it a rule and to exclude people in your mind or to demean people in your mind because they don't live up to your particular idea of what the discipline ought to be is wrong. That is, is sin. So we legitimately differ on disputable matters. Now, thirdly, Roman numeral number three, we're going to move quickly, obviously. The rest of the text, verses three through 12. Remember why we welcome each other. Paul, once again, you know how the apostle works and how the Bible works. We don't just have a list of rules. We have a life manual in the Bible showing us not just what to do and what not to do, but why we do what we do and why we don't do what we don't do. We're all theologians. We're all worshipers. We all have a personal relationship with a living God. And everything that we do, we ultimately want it to become intuitive out of a loving relationship with Him. So that means we have to know the why. That's the reason as a father, you want to explain to your children why you do this and why you do that. Let them see your heart and your mind, your ethical thinking, including the issues of family discipline that I just mentioned. Why do we have these disciplines? Why do we not play sports on Sundays, for example? You should explain to your family humbly why you think that's the best direction for you to go in, even though it's not eminently biblical. So you're using pastoral wisdom in your family. Explain the why. Why? Glad you asked why. Because you want your kids to be thoughtful parents one day. They have to reason morally. They have to think in terms of their own personal disciplines, how they think these things through. So you explain this to them. That's what the Apostle Paul always does. First of all, verse 3, we welcome others because God welcomes every believer. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. No passing judgment on the one who eats. No passing judgment on the one who drinks wine. No passing judgment on the one who plays golf on Sunday afternoon. Yikes. You know, in one church I served, we had the, the golfer's special worship service. It was a 45-minute service. Uh, at eight o'clock in the morning, and some wore their cleats to the chapel service. <laughs> How long do you think that service lasted after I got there? Not very long. God welcomes every believer. God, Paul is not encouraging moral laxity or indifference. He's only talking about the problem of matters of indifference. If it's not a matter of indifference, you won't find Paul indifferent. So in this argument, he is not pleading for moral laxity on matters that are principles of the scriptures. Now, at the same time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll find the apostle teaches us that we should judge our behavior. We should judge each other's behavior. We live in family. We exhort each other. We rebuke each other. On what grounds do we rebuke each other? making moral judgments in each other's lives. So it's not as though we make no moral judgments in our own lives or the lives of others. It is that we do not stand in the place of God and exclude people with whom we disagree on indifferent matters. Now, uh, B, verse 4, we are all God's servants. Paul is making the argument, God seems to like his servants fine, the ones you disagree with on indifferent matters. So he accepts them, they stand before him. So are these people not going to stand before you in your judgment? 
when they stand before God as his servants, see, verses five through nine, we must obey our consciences. He says, uh, number one, believers' consciences are bound differently. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And <clears throat> some Reformed people, Presbyterian people would say he's not talking about the Sabbath here. He's talking about special Jewish festival days and so on. Look at Colossians chapter two. I think you'll see he's talking about Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and annual feasts. And he puts them all in there in Colossians. So when I, I think when Paul's talking about days, he's definitely talking about the Sabbath. Why? Because that would be the one big issue with the Jewish folks in the Christian church, that we've got to keep the Sabbath. I'm a Presbyterian, Westminster Confession. We say that we're obligated to keep the Sabbath. I've already taken exception about that before my presbytery because I think you have to be very careful with the argument in Romans 14 and Colossians 2. Now, the best argument for the Sabbath I heard in my life was from a fellow Presbyterian clergyman who said, Sandy, you'll never understand the Sabbath if you don't keep it yourself. You can't stand outside of Sabbath keeping and decide whether it's useful or not. He said, enter into it and enjoy the day. Now, even though I'm not a strict Sabbatarian, I'm a Lord's Day person. And I believe that in God's providence, we've been given these seasons and times to worship Him. And my question for you, what would you rather do than worship God? I mean, would you rather watch 60 Minutes or an NFL game than worship God? We have morning and evening worship services here. We encourage men to come to both if they're members of our church. What would you prefer to do? You say, I've got work to do on Monday. I know you've got work to do on Monday. So you'd rather prepare for your work on Monday than to worship God with his people on Sunday night? I don't, I'm, not, I'm having a hard time understanding this. So I'm not a strict Sabbatarian. I'm just saying, where's your heart? And that to me is the, the matter here. But we must all obey our consciences and our consciences are different. Secondly, all believers are seeking to serve the Lord. If you're a real believer, you drink your wine, drink it with thanksgiving. If you're a teetotaler, don't drink your wine with thanksgiving that you're not high like everybody else. And thirdly, all believers belong to the Lord. We're His. We're not each other's property. We're all His property. And we're here for His pleasure, not ours. Now D, and lastly, verses 10 through 12, God alone is the judge. This is the big problem with judging one another whether their disciplines are the same as your disciplines, whether their conformity to your view of indifferent matters is the, is the same. Here's the problem. You're putting yourself in the place of God and God alone is the judge of all the earth. So this is the reason Jesus said in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. So yes, we judge each other's behavior. We don't judge each other's souls. That's ultimately for God alone to do. There's a difference between instructing and rebuking one another on moral ideas. And on the other hand, censoriously judging each other day after day based on conformity or lack of conformity to indifferent matters. So Paul is saying if we're to live like family and really love our neighbors ourselves, we've got to learn the difference between matters of indifference and biblical truth and ethical norms. And secondly, we've got to learn the difference between cardinal doctrines and those that are secondary, where we ought to be able to live and work and serve the Lord together and worship Him together. Because we agree on the cardinal doctrines, even though we may disagree on the secondary doctrines. It's all about love. And love is all about appropriating 
the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his bold and clear message to us. Thank you for the faith that you've given us that, that applies to every aspect of our lives, everything. Thank you for the wisdom that you give us so that we can think thoughts after Christ, so that we can dissect ethical matters and make judgments and seek to live wise lives where we can apply disciplines to ourselves without judging others who don't use the same non-biblical disciplines. And we pray that you'll increasingly help us that we may love our neighbor as ourselves. For Jesus came to love even his enemies. And we are yours because of him. So we make our prayer in his name. Amen.